morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at LOPC, and I've officially become spoiled. I use, I'm used to the countdown, and I'm like, okay, I've got three minutes and 12 seconds to say hi to somebody, and then it's counting down and all of that. So I looked up, and I didn't see the screen on, and I'm like, does that mean I have 22 minutes before we start? Do I have more time to be relational and reach out and say hello? I'm going to do it from here, since I don't know if we're late or on time, and that is we're glad that you're here to worship with us, whether that is here in person or on the live stream. We are thrilled that you have chosen to worship with us. We hope and pray that it is a rich, warm time of exalting and celebrating our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're a visitor with us this morning, we offer a very, very warm welcome to you. We're thrilled you've chosen to worship with us. We hope as you came in, you received our visitor's bag, gives you a little information, some fun stuff, and lets you know about us. And I'd like to invite everyone, if you would, please, if you're on the outside of the aisle here, or maybe I should say from my perspective, the inside of the aisle, get the friendship tab started. And this is for everyone. Pass it down in the aisle. Sign your name. Let us know that you're here. Helps us in terms of building relationships. Wasn't it wonderful to come in this morning and to see how beautiful the facilities, the sanctuary, the grounds look. I want to give a huge shout out and thank you to all the volunteers and to our deacons who helped to make this sanctuary and the facilities in our campus so beautiful for the Advent and Christmas season. Thank you all. We are more than grateful and appreciative. So we are th a special thank you to all couple of different uh, announcements before we enter into worship. Uh, this weekend, December 2nd and 3rd, is the Inquirer's class. If you are interested in that, we'd invite you to sign up, please. The deadline is tomorrow, and we do that largely because on Friday evening is a dinner at our home. Gives Evie a little time to shop and to prepare, and that will be at 6 o'clock, and then there's the class uh, after that, and then the class again, 9 o'clock Saturday morning is here. And so if you're interested in that, we'd invite you uh, to sign up. It is not too late to uh, submit a pledge card for LOPC 2.0. We still have the table with the secure box uh, out front in the narthex. And so if you haven't given your pledge card, we encourage you and invite you to do that. A couple of other things coming up. One of the things I want to do right now is invite Lynn Folks, who is in charge of our women's ministry, to share with you about our Advent tea. Um, I just needed to cover a couple of things that maybe some of you hadn't heard about and to make it a little more clear about the sign-up in the narthex, which, by the way, is against the far wall um, on beside the mission display. The tea is December 6th, of course, at 6.30 p.m. The doors will open at 6, and we need more hostesses. If anybody has um, Christmas wear, Christmas china, um, it doesn't even have to be fancy stuff, and you would like to decorate a table, please sign up and indicate that on the form. Um, there will be more information coming out for the hostesses so that you'll know what to do about decorating and what you can use and what you can't use, like glitter, no glitter. Um, we will be having a catered 
dessert fest. And the, the caterer needs to know exactly how many people are coming by tomorrow morning. So if you haven't signed up by the end of the morning, you will be out of luck. Um, the program is a musical program. The LOPC Men's Quartet will be performing. And then we have some uh, musical surprises that you will find delightful, I hope. Um, please sign up today. It is the last day. And we just need to get an accurate count. There will be a nursery provided up to age three. So if there's anything else, I will be back uh, in the narthex after the service, and I can answer questions. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn. Also note the Christmas cantata on Sunday evening, December 18th at 6 p.m. Our choir, under Amy's direction, is working fervently and very hard to provide a wonderful evening of worship and celebration. And so we want to encourage you. This is also a great opportunity to invite family and friends and neighbors uh, to come on out to experience, obviously, the celebration of the season and to enjoy some wonderful, wonderful music and fellowship as well. This morning is the first Sunday. You know, the first Sunday of Advent is very interesting because how many of us are still in a turkey coma from Thursday, you know? We, we still have that, and now we're moving suddenly in the church year to the first Sunday of Advent. And the word Advent means coming. And for us, it's an opportunity we look back at the first coming of Jesus, the Incarnation. That's really what Christmas is all about. We also look forward to the second coming of Jesus, when he will return to judge the living and the dead, to put all the world rights. And so it's a time where we get to see the human condition. We feel the brokenness and the suffering that goes on in the world. We're looking forward with longing and anticipation and hope to a world with Christ truly at the center where the kingdom of God is all in all. You know, my family has experienced some brokenness in recent days with the passing of both Evie's mother and brother. And I, for one, want to say thank you. One of the ways we fix our eyes on Jesus is through his body, through his church. And so we are grateful to all of you for your cards and your love and your concern and your emails and your calls and your prayers and all that you've showered upon us. I got to tell you, it was such a great feeling for us to be able to come home. And we really feel like LOPC in the Lake area is our home. And so we want to say thank you to all of you. We are grateful to you. And so what I want to do right now is invite Lee and Rhonda Manus to come forward. And they're going to do the reading and the prayer for the first Sunday in Advent and light our Advent candle this morning. And then Amy will go into the prelude. Scripture reading for today is Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. And it reads as follows. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, 
that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. now for our prayer. Lord, during the Advent season, we are grateful for your first coming to the earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And we long and we ache for your triumphant, victorious return when you will make all things right and righteous and justice will prevail. We long for the day, as Isaiah prophesied, when the mountain of the house of the Lord will be fully established when all nations shall flow to it, when many peoples will seek out your ways in order to walk in your paths. We long for the day when there will be no more violence, when the weapons of violence will be no more, when swords will be beaten into plowshares, when all disputes will be settled, and when the, word, when the world is put to rights, Lord, until that time, Help us as your people to wait expectantly, to hope with patience, and to love abundantly. For Jesus' sake, amen.
Our call to worship this morning comes from 1 Chronicles, chapter 16, verses 8 to 11. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. We thank you, Father, that you have called us this day, the day that you have made to come into your very presence, to glory in your name, to give thanks to you, to call upon you, to make known to a watching world your deeds among all nations. We pray that you would be with us as we sing to you, as we sing your praises, as we exalt your holy name. We invoke you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to be with us to be glorified through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing together our opening hymn of praise, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus.
That isn't the heart of Advent right there. Come to earth to taste our sadness. The book of Hebrews talks about how Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Talk about a great high priest who is the champion of our salvation. While we're on the earth, though, we struggle and we wrestle. And we wrestle with our enemies, the world, the devil, and our flesh, our own sinfulness. Peter put it this way in terms of our need of confession. And I love how he starts because he calls the church beloved. So it's not confess in order to get something, to be something. You're already, if you're in Christ, you're already his beloved. He pastorally says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Friends, we are in a war. We are in warfare, and our war is against the passions, the desires of our own flesh, our pride, our desire for independence, for autonomy. What are those things that trouble you in your own life? What are those things that you are wrestling with in your own flesh? Take a few moments personally to confess your sins, to engage with the Lord, to do business with him. And then in a few minutes, I will lead us in and we will pray together our corporate confession of sin. Let us pray. Let us pray together. Most merciful God, whose Son, Jesus Christ, was tempted in every way, yet without sin, we confess before you our own sinfulness. We have hungered after that which does not satisfy. We have compromised with evil. We have doubted your power to protect us. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Have mercy on our weakness. Restore us in such trust and love that we may walk in your ways and delight in doing your will. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And our assurance of pardon from 1 Peter chapter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. If you are in Jesus Christ, be assured of this. Your sins have been hurled into the depths 
of the ocean, into the depths of the sea, because Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Friends, let us stand and continue praising the Lord, singing together 10,000 Reasons.
seated. His name is great and his heart is kind. What a wonderful God we praise, we love, and we serve. Let's continue to worship going before him in a time of prayer. Let's pray together the prayer our Lord taught us to pray, and then I will lead us in our pastoral prayer. Friends, let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We say with the psalmist, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and beauty. Our Father who art in heaven, we hallow your name for who you are, our strong tower, our banner of truth, our good shepherd. And we thank you for sending Jesus Christ, your only Son, to this earth to rescue, to reclaim, and to restore us. We think of the words of the Apostle Paul, for you have rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of your Son whom you love, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so, Lord, may we feed off that. May that be part of our daily bread. You know what we need physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, socially. In every arena, we are dependent upon you. We ask, Father, that you would lead us not into the temptation of being independent, of self-reliance and self-righteousness and spiritual pride that we are so prone to. That, Father, instead we would be sanctified and made holy by your grace and the power and the outworking of the Holy Spirit. We recognize that there are many in our number who are suffering difficulties, trials, may even be tempted to quit or to despair. Lord, by the love of the body and our prayers, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would sustain them, help them, hold them up. No matter what the form of suffering or affliction or brokenness is, we entrust them to your shepherd-like care. Ask that you would be with them in the uncertainties involved in our journey. Help us, empower us to trust you to live by faith and trust that expresses itself in a life of love. Lord, we pray that we would be a people seeking your kingdom in every way. That, Father, we would long for your kingdom to come. And that while we long for it, we would wait and we would hasten its coming. That you would enable us to wait patiently. Father, we thank you for this time that we have in worship. We thank you for one another. We thank you for those who are here in person, for everyone who's watching online, 
We ask, Father, as we are about to open your word in a few moments, that you would speak to us through your word. That in a very real way, this is another Advent. We talked about the Advent of Jesus' first coming and the Advent of his second coming. But you also come to us in word and in sacrament. And we pray that you would come to us through your word. For yours indeed is the kingdom alone and the power alone and the glory alone. As we prayed in our call to worship, may we seek the glory of your holy name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take our sin and 
It's great to be back with you. When Evie and I were away and driving in, I really thought to myself, this is home, and it is great to be back with my church family. Uh, aren't you excited? For those of you who weren't here last week, I'm sorry. For those of you who were here, aren't you excited to have Travis with us? I listened online. I was one of the 80, 184 views. I was amazed by that. I was like, wow, he's got quite the following. I need to step up my online game here a little bit. <laughs> and I thought to myself, and as a matter of fact, I said to Evie, I said, he hit it out of the park. I mean, he absolutely crushed it. And I don't know about you all, but I am super excited for he and Ellen to be a part of our team. Now, I speak in language like that, team and stuff like that, because you all know I love sports. As a matter of fact, my youngest brother, DJ, and I, we have a thing because we both like to listen to sports talk radio. I don't know if any of you, the peoples, you remember WIP up in Philadelphia? That's what kind of turned me on to it. I was a big Jody McDonald fan. And now I listen to sports radio all the time. And here's a running debate in the sports talk world. Who is the GOAT in any sport? Now, you know what I mean by GOAT? GOAT is an acronym that stands for the greatest of all time. And so if you're a basketball fan, you're going, is it Michael Jordan or LeBron James? I'll help you out with this. It's Michael Jordan. If you're a football fan, is it Tom Brady? I'm not sure who it is. Maybe Joe Montana after that? I don't know who said that one. Tom Brady, I'm afraid, probably has. Now, here I can have fun. Imagine we're having a cup of coffee together. And I sit there and I kind of go, okay, you dog fans, you UGA, who's the greatest of all time in terms of Georgia football? I bet you everybody has have an answer in terms of that. The writer to the book of Hebrews wants us to make no mistake about who is truly the GOAT. It's Jesus Christ. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, we read, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible, other translations put it, indescribable gift. Jesus is called a gift that words can't even describe or express. And the only way, the only thing that will change us, transform us, is if we are captured by the greatness, the beauty, and the superiority of Jesus. And so what we're going to be doing this Advent and Christmas season is we're going to be doing something, because we all love to do this at Christmas time. What do we like to do? Open the packages. You want to see what's in the gifts. We're going to open the gift of Christ and look at the riches of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to be exploring the very start of the letter to the Hebrews, so if you have Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and 2, verses 1 to 4. And we're going to study and explore the riches of the package, which the writer to the Hebrews says is as much superior to the angels. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. The writer to the Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, 
through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Friends, let us pray together. Father, thank you for the promise that your word does not return void, but accomplishes what you've set out for it to accomplish, what you have purposed for it. May it be your good pleasure to grant to us Holy Spirit, to take the truth and the glory of Christ and to quicken it to our lives, to our souls, to transform us by the greatness and the glory and the grace of Jesus. Open our minds and our hearts that we would receive your word, submit to your word, come under the authority of your word, and be transformed by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most exciting things about Christmas, Christmas is opening presents, opening gifts. I've shared this with you before. Evie is such a better gift giver than I am. We'll be married 35 years next June. You know what my batting average is in surprising her with gifts? 0 for 35. You know what her batting average is surprising me? 35 for 35. She's amazing when it comes to it. Sometimes I just like the fun and anticipation of, oh, well, she surprised me this year. Even though I'm sure through the year, I've told her this is what I would like, and this way she knows me so well, no one knows me like she does, that she's able to do this. I remember, I think I've shared this with you before, as a child, having to wait until exactly 7 a.m. before we could venture downstairs to see what was under the tree. And there were the three of us, three boys, hovered over each other, kind of wrestling who can come down the stairs first and fastest and stuff. But we were waiting with such anticipation and expectation. The theme of this passage and of this entire letter is simple. The greatness of Jesus. Tim Keller says that the focus of the letter to the Hebrews is found in chapter 12, the first opening verses there of it, where he talks about we're on the wilderness journey, life is a journey, and you're going from the wilderness to the promised land, and how do you get there? By fixing your eyes on Jesus. But now let's be honest with ourselves. Do any of us really know how to fix our eyes on Jesus? What does that look like? Fix your eyes on him. Yeah, maybe we go to church an hour a week. We glance at him here. We glance at him there. We read our Bibles every day, and we try not to get too distracted by hmm, ESPN sports scores or whatever's going on in the news or anything like that. 
but what does it really look like, and do we know how to fix our eyes on Jesus? And why is this so important, and what does this have to do with Advent? See, this is so important if you know the context to the letter, of the letter to the Hebrews, because the writer is writing to a group of people, probably mostly Jewish, who have been separated, dispersed, and sent out. Commentators and scholars think they're now more than likely living in places like Italy, and they've undergone and are currently facing tremendous brokenness and suffering. And they're tempted to despair. They're tempted to give up on the Christian life. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever tasted brokenness to the point where you're tempted to say, why bother? See, they're tempted to quit following Jesus and go back to Judaism. And in the midst of the brokenness, the darkness of life, and Advent is about owning that darkness. We're longing for the second coming of Jesus, where you're being honest and realistic. One of my favorite writers, Fleming Rutledge, says, Advent is not for sissies. You're honest about the brokenness and the suffering of life, and it is only the supremacy, only the greatness, only the beauty, only the glory of Jesus that can not only get us through, but can transform us. See, we need to understand, why is this, what does this have to do with Advent? And why is this important for Advent? See, Advent means, as I mentioned earlier, coming. So we look back at the first coming of Jesus. We're looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. And quoting Fleming Rutledge again, who's a favorite writer of mine on this topic, she says, since the Advent season has been so closely linked to Christmas over the years, it may be startling to hear that Advent is not simply a transitional season, but in and of itself communicates a message of immense, even ultimate importance. Of all the seasons of the church year, Advent most closely mirrors the daily lives of Christians and of the church, asks the most important ethical question, presents the most accurate picture of the human condition, and above all, orients us to the future of the God who will come again. In other words, it helps us to fix our eyes on Jesus. She writes, in a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. It can well be called the time between, because the people of God live in the time between the first coming of Christ, incognito in the stable in Bethlehem, and his second coming, in absolute wondrous glory to judge the living and the dead. The disappointment, brokenness, suffering and pain that characterize life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. In that Advent season, the church lives its life. Friends, do you hear that? Advent is not just a time between the Sunday after Thanksgiving and Christmas Eve. The entirety of our lives is Advent. And how do we get through? While being honest and real and authentic about the reality, the condition, and the brokenness of this world, we learn to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so, friends, this morning, this opening passage we're looking at, 
sets the stage for the rest of the letter. We're going to, in a sense, untie the bow a little bit. You have to come back the other three weeks of Advent to untie the rest of the package and dive in. I want us to be like my brothers and I were at 7 a.m. on our Christmas morning. Wonder and anticipation at opening the package and seeing the riches of Christ. The writer to the Hebrews wants us to know the greatness and ultimate superiority of Jesus, the final word. And we learn that under three headings in three ways in this text. We learn, first of all, who he is, second, what he did, and third, how should we respond? Who he is, what he did, and then it demands a response. Take a look with me at verse 1, who he is. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, here's the first thing that we learn. What do we learn about God? God is a speaking God. God is not quiet. He is a revealing God. He's a God who wants us to know him. He wants to be known. That means immediately we see that God's very nature is relational. That relationship is at the heart and fabric of all reality. See, think back to how the Bible introduces us to God. In the beginning, God, and then we get on to creation, created the heavens and the earth. And as we read in the scriptures, we learn that God is what? One God existing in three persons. Yes, the word Trinity may not be used or named there, but we learn that he's triune, he's tri-personal, he's tri-personality, he's self-existent and eternal. What was he doing before creation? So, for example, Jesus says in John chapter 17, he's praying, he says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before the world existed, there's the Father and the Son, they had a mutual glory. The Father, Son, and Spirit lived in mutual relationship, loving each other, serving one another, harboring each other at the center of their being. Mutual love, service, glory, communion, relationship is at the heart of reality. Tim Keller introduces the term perichoresis, from which is the roots of our word choreography meaning to dance or flow around to describe this. And he quotes C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says this term perichoresis comes from early Greek Christians who spoke of this term perichoresis in God, meaning that each divine person harbors the others at the center of their being. In Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing, nor a static thing, not even just one person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, a kind of drama. See, Christian, when we read the words in the past, God spoke, I want you to hear clearly, God speaks. He's a relational, revealing God who wants us to not just know information, but to know him personally. See, if God still remained silent, you could still have religion, but you couldn't have Christianity. You could have religion, man trying very, very hard to please some deity of their own making, 
to try very, very hard to build a life, an identity of their own, try to create themselves, lead a good life, and somehow try to maybe reach some afterlife or nirvana or something. But friends, that is not Christianity. Christianity is absolutely unique. If God remained silent, the human condition would truly be one of utter, utter desperation. But God has spoken. And this is different from what theologians and our Westminster Confession calls general revelation, where God reveals, for example, reveals he ought to be worshipped, that we see that in nature or creation. This is what's called special revelation. And we learn that it's given in two stages. First, it was given when he says to their ancestors, the prophets, their forefathers through the prophets. This is the Old Testament. Now it says in the New Testament, in these last days, it is given in the Son. Jesus is God's final, all-sufficient, authoritative word. This is why Paul can say, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken to us by the glory of God. And after he makes this initial statement, look with this. He declares that the Son is God's final revelation, final word. Look at how he describes the absolute greatness and superiority. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. He gives these five amazing affirmations. You thought it was a three-point sermon. I just described it in eight points now. You think you're going to be here? See, I had a week off. I'm feeling pretty energetic. Look with me at verse 2 where he says, whom he appointed heir of all things. He's alluding back to Psalm 2 where he says, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Look at the cosmic scope. Jesus is heir of all things. It embraces the whole universe. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance. That includes us. We are promised to Jesus as part of Jesus' inheritance. That's why part of fixing our eyes on Jesus, the next phrase in Hebrews 12 says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Do you know who that joy was that was set before him, that led him to despise the shame, the mocking, to go through the torture, to endure the cross? Do you know who that joy was? It was us. We are part of his inheritance. We are who he gets. Now, part of me goes, really? He would want us? And then part of us, tell me how much we need to learn how to receive love. We're so worthwhile to God, so worthwhile to Jesus, so validated to him that we are part of his inheritance. He's the heir of all things. The father has said, I am giving a bride to my son, and we are that bride. Oh, church, that we would learn the intimacy that Jesus is appointed heir of all things. Second, through whom he made the universe. God brought the universe into being through the agency of the Son. This reminds us of the early chapter of chapter, the first chapter of John's gospel where he says, through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. And then next it says the sun is the radiance of God's glory. 
the writer has in mind in this particular phrase, identifying the son with the wisdom of God. He's alluding to the Proverbs where wisdom is personified and is the companion of the Almighty in the, be in the beginning. There is a reference in the Alexandrian Book of Wisdom, a very poetic reference, where wisdom is said to be a breath of the power of God and a clear affluence of the glory of the Almighty and a, an effulgence from everlasting light and an unspotted mirror of the working of God and an image of his goodness. The word for radiance denotes the radiance shining forth from the source of light. One commentator put it this way. He said, just as the radiance of the sun reaches the earth, so in Christ the glorious light of God shines into the hearts of men. The fourth affirmation concerning the greatness of the sun is that he is the exact imprint of his nature. The Greek word that's used here is a very interesting word because it's used especially of an impression on a stamp, on coins and seals. Just as the image and superscription on a coin exactly corresponds to the device on the die, so the Son of God bears the very stamp of God's nature. In other words, what God is is made manifest in Christ. If you want to know what God looks like, who God is, what his agenda is, what his personality is like, everything about him, look at Jesus. To see Jesus is to see God, the exact imprint of his nature. And then lastly, upholds the universe by the word of his power. I love the way one commentator put it when he said, the sun upholds the universe not like Atlas supporting a dead weight on his shoulders, but as one who carries all things forward on their appointed course. This is very important because it affirms a Christian view of history, that history is not repeated cycles. History is going on a course. History has a destination. History is going someplace. And you want to know where it's going? Exactly where God wants to take it. God is the creator and the author of all history. That means the entire universe is under Jesus's perfect sovereign control. There is nothing that is not under his lordship, his kingship, and his authority. I read this illustration years and years ago. There was a staff worker for InterVarsity Press. And I remember Tim Keller giving this illustration one time, and he put it this way, indicating that the only proper way to relate to such a person, they said, imagine that the distance from the Earth to the Sun, a distance that we know is 93 million miles. Imagine that that distance, 93 million miles, was the thickness of a sheet of paper. So the thickness of one sheet of paper is 93 million miles. Then the distance from the Earth to the nearest star alone would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. The dia diameter of just our galaxy alone would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. And our galaxy is only a single speck, one of an infinite number of galaxies, just in the part of the universe that we can see. Now he says, if, as the Bible says, Jesus Christ holds all that together with simply the word of his power, is that the kind of person you just simply ask into your life to be your consultant or co-pilot? Is that the kind of person that you say, oh yes, 
I'm still autonomously driving my life. I'm the master of my soul. I'm the captain of my faith. But I could use help. Absolutely not. If you were to relate to such a person, he will either be the absolute Lord and King of your life, or he will be nothing. Now that's who he is. But how do we relate to such a person? The only logical way, the only way, intellectually honest way, is as absolute Lord. But how do we do that? Because if we're honest about that, that will crush us. And fortunately, the writer to the Hebrews tells us what Jesus did. He says, after he had provided purification for sins. Jesus, this absolute Lord, accomplished what man never could have. And only if we know this can we relate to Jesus as he is, as transcendent Lord, but as loving Savior and friend and brother. This introduces the work of Jesus as our great high priest that the letter to the Hebrews is going to unpack and unfold for us. See, if you only contemplate the wondrous awe of who Jesus is and his power and glory, if all we do is look at the lordship of Jesus Christ and we look at it honestly, which of us can measure up? Which of us can reach that standard? Which of us can relate to him that way? It may be able to provoke some level of awe, some level of fear, but it will crush us. It will never produce the kind of life that Paul talks about in Romans 12 when he says, by the mercies of God. Why do you think he starts this way? By the mercies of God, present your body as a living sacrifice. See, the only kind of life where we owe everything to him and gladly give him everything is the life that has been captivated and captured by radical grace. Radical grace is the only thing that will produce this sense of look at what it cost him, a personal indebtedness, where he can ask you anything, and you not only do it, you gladly do it. And as a matter of fact, I think for many of us, one of the reasons we avoid, we like grace but not too much, because I think we know deep down, we know inherently, if we truly embrace grace, that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. But with Jesus and Jesus alone, we truly have everything by his He can ask anything of us. He can ask of us what seem, that which seems utterly ridiculous, utterly foreign, makes no sense to us. Radical grace is the only thing that can change us, where we gladly give all to God and his cause. And see, look at the end of verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He sat down at the right hand of the throne on high. Notice two things here. First, notice right hand. Christ is reigning, ruling, and ministering in the true heavenly sanctuary, not an earthly copy. Jesus is running the world. No power, no principality, no government, no program. 
Jesus Christ and him alone is running the universe and running the world. And second, notice that he sat down. Why is that significant? Why is that important? Because it contrasts with the Old Testament priests who had to remain standing because their work was never finished. Their sacrificial service never came to an end. But Jesus, when he died on the cross, when he made purification for sins, when he can say to you and I, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you, he can say, it is finished, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. If this is true, how do we respond? If we know Jesus, the Son of God, God's final and ultimate word in both who he is and what he did, and what he did in his radical grace, how should we respond? Look with me at verses chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, where he says now in verse 1, we must pay much closer attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Verse 2, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? If we see who Jesus is, and we see what he's done, friends, please do not ignore, do not be unconcerned with what you do with Christ. I often say this before we come to the Lord's table. I say this often when we're having our liturgy of confession. Do business with Christ. This is your time to do business with him. This passage, in fact, this whole letter is challenging us to do serious business with Christ. If you say, I believe in him, I, I accept him, okay, it's okay, but I leave him far enough, you're kind of neutral, you can't be neutral towards Christ. You either have your allegiance to Jesus or you don't. See, consider what this text claims about Jesus. Notice verse 2, since the message, in other words, the word. I want to ask you this question. Whose and what word will you listen to in your life? We talked about earlier how the theme to the letter to the Hebrews is fixing your eyes on Jesus. Friends, you have your eyes fixed on something. What or who will you fix your eyes on? Your eyes may be fixed on having a great marriage, your grandchildren being healthy, being successful in your career, being secure in your retirement. Your eyes can be fixed on a political party. Your eyes can be fixed on all sorts of things. The only thing that can crown you with love and beauty and satisfaction and true security and true certainty is having your eyes fixed on Jesus. Consider what this text is claiming about Jesus. Ask him to show you its reality, its truth, its coherence, its power. If you're already a Christian, ask that this would be made more real, that Jesus would be more real to you, that we would return to our first love, that we would truly live captivated by radical grace. Father, we thank you so much that Jesus indeed is the final word 
And we pray that Jesus would be whom we would listen to and whom we would have our eyes fixed upon. That we'd come under his lordship, knowing that it's not a crushing lordship because he's made us clean by his word. He's declared us righteous. He's imputed his very life to us, that we get credit for what he has done. Oh, that our sole allegiance would be to Jesus and that we would seek first his kingdom and his power. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, let's stand and sing our closing hymn this morning. Rejoice, the Lord is indeed king. receive the Lord's benediction. May the love of God the Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now, this week, and forevermore. Amen.